I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Every Monday, this August, we're looking back at some of the stories from the past year that stuck with us. Not least, because to understand the world now, it often helps to look back to see how we got here. Today's look back couldn't be more timely. As the Taliban take control of Afghanistan again, we return to the early signs that the withdrawal was about to go badly wrong. It's time, after all these years, to go and to bring our people back home. We want to bring our people back home. Over the past week, we've heard politicians express their shock, saying no one saw this coming. But we're looking back at the agreement last February that sowed the seeds for the disaster that's followed. Everyone's eyes been sort of taken off what's been going on in the the world's longest war. But in fact, in Doha, the war is escalating again. We're revisiting my conversations from last year with The Times foreign correspondent Anthony Lloyd and with Afghanistan's recently deposed president, Ashraf Ghani. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the deal that handed Afghanistan to the Taliban. Anthony Lloyd has been reporting from Afghanistan for The Times for 25 years, long before the recent war started. Some of the main protagonists of people I knew back then as well. We've all got older in the war together. 18 months ago, the United States and the Taliban reached a fateful agreement. People talk about it as a peace agreement, but it was more of a withdrawal agreement. It was a bilateral agreement signed between the Americans and the Taliban in Doha. And basically, it outlined a schedule for the American withdrawal from Afghanistan. And it conceded most of the Taliban's major demands. For a start, there was a timetable for an American withdrawal, providing the Taliban were in negotiations with the Afghan government. It wasn't even that there had to be a peace agreement, a peace deal, or the implementation of a peace deal for all American troops to have been removed from Afghanistan. The Taliban would get sanctions against them lifted and and have various other measures, you know, the uh, release of 5,000 Taliban prisoners from government jails in return for a 1,000 security force personnel held by the Taliban. That wasn't something that the Afghan government 
agreed to themselves, nor were they involved in the negotiation for that. And it's also very, very unusual step in in a peace talk or, or negotiation to release prisoners in advance of it. Usually prisoners are released as part of a step-by-step process during negotiations. So that was another way the government were undercut. So this is a deal between the Americans and the Taliban. Where were the Afghan government? Because it sounds like these terms would really weaken their hand. I, I think this is very widely misunderstood among Western publics. The Afghan government were not included in the talks. In August last year, I spoke to Ashraf Ghani, Afghanistan's president, who a year later, in August 2021, would end up fleeing the country. I asked him what he made of the deal. Peace means end of violence. Peace does not mean a deal that is going to be a prelude to another round of this. Future historians will judge as to whether a more organized process making the agreement between Taliban and the government first and then dealing with the issue of US departure would have been a better way or is this way? Some people, having seen this deal, having seen the prisoner releases and the fact that there is still violence taking place and the Taliban haven't completely stopped that, it is being hailed by some people, particularly Taliban figures, as a Taliban victory, is it? Who if they ask to be released? Some of the largest drug dealers in the world. Yeah. Some of the worst criminals on the face of the earth. If drugs go through the roof in United Kingdom and Europe, all your leaders have been part of this. And if these people commit crimes, it's shared international responsibility. We've made this decision together. Now we will see what the Taliban truly believe. As you describe it, Afghanistan is on a precipice. You know, the violence could get much worse or you could finally have the stability you need to rebuild as a country. Are you worried that America in particular seems so keen to leave in such a hurry? Have you been assured that you'll get the support you need? We need support to build our security forces The key thing that we want from the international community is support for an orderly peace. We are at that critical juncture between either bringing stability to our country or, God forbid, going to a new cycle of violence. I can't think of a recent successful peace deal which has excluded the government from negotiations. It's imperative to seek peace. Nevertheless, you can't just impose peace in a country. You have to manipulate and massage a process in order to achieve peace very, very carefully and in a very balanced fashion. And if you try and do it in a slipshod, hasty railroad fashion, that of which Doha has been undertaken, then you risk, as Doha does, actually inflaming a war rather than than palliating and ending it. There were fears at the time that the deal would make it harder for the Afghan government to deal with the Taliban once NATO forces had left. It's even worse than that, because 
the backdrop to Doha was this very bitter presidential disputes between two contenders for the Afghan presidency following the highly contentious presidential elections. And in fact, neither of the two leading rivals agreed to back off. So two men, President Ashraf Ghani, the incumbent, and Dr. Abdullah Abdullah, his main rival, were both inaugurated as president in ceremonies that each of them had run, and both swore on the Holy Quran to serve their people as president. The Americans tried to solve this impasse, because without that, with two presidencies, you can't even agree on the delegation that are then supposed to talk to the Taliban. But they didn't manage to solve it. And then in what looks like a fit of peak, the U.S. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, cut $1 billion worth of U.S. aid to the Afghan government, much of which was designated for Afghan security forces. So the predicament and the position of the Afghan government is even weaker. One thing is fair to say, the position could not go on as it had been, in that the Americans have been there since 2001. Uh, nearly 2,500 American soldiers had been killed in Afghanistan. Their overall investment in the war had been over $2 trillion, with very little show for it. The war was actually increasing in aggressiveness. There were more people killed in Afghanistan last year than in any other war ongoing in the world. It's just the way it has been done looks set to uh, actually worsen the war rather than end it. Even last May, when we recorded this conversation, the signs were clear. You're looking at a world who have Barnard looked away and the Taliban could move again to try and take Kabul. I never thought that was possible. I went the very end of February and then was travelling for the first two weeks of March. Much of it through traditional Taliban heartland areas in, in, in the south. What's this gentleman's name? How old are you? It's a bit of an impertinent question, but I always ask everybody how old they are. I'm 53. The deal has given the Taliban a narrative that they have defeated another superpower, just as their forefathers defeated the Russians. You and your people have fought in your lifetime against two superpowers. Probably one of the only countries in the world to have done that. How does that feel? We boast and we are so proud of defeating two superpower and feel we feel so proud and boasted. The echoes of this narrative were everywhere. We have just defeated another superpower. The fighters on the ground do not see the Doha deal as a peace deal. They see it as a totemic moment of American defeat. What about the agreement signed with the Americans in Doha? Was that just to allow the Americans to withdraw or was that seriously for peace? Uh, yes, exactly. So the reason why we fought and also the lot of the younger Taliban, for them sharing power is not a solution. Unless we bring a fully Sharia law, that's why we fought for it. And they see in this their own victory as the chance just to wait out for the Americans' full withdrawal, at which point they want to overthrow the government in Kabul and re-establish the Islamic Emirate. 
tell me about yourself. Uh, remind me, how old are you? I'm 30. And you were born originally? I met one particular Taliban commander, field commander, who's 30 years old, up near the border with Pakistan. And how long have you been with the Taliban? And he was laughing at the notion that the Taliban should ever sit down with the Afghan government. Do you think it's possible for the Taliban to share power in some way with the government in Kabul or not? We will share power and we will forgive them if they follow our rules and regulations. <laughs> yeah, okay. He was like, why on earth would we want to negotiate with Democrats at this time of, of our victory? They accepted that they have been defeated. So that means like they want to withdraw and they want to escape. Afghan security forces, they are still supporting uh, democracy and the government which is not really uh, Islamic. You know, as soon as the Americans are gone, we're going to move on Kabul. Now we are just getting prepared for it, sending troops home. Sending troops where? In readiness? Yes. But sending troops where? We are trying to uh, send troops to the neighbouring uh, provinces of Kabul, to be very close to Kabul. We believe that most of the Afghan government forces will collapse. Have the Taliban got friends within the Afghan government? Of course, we have many friends in the ANA, ALP and ANP and uh, Kabul, say, who are cooperating with us. I said to him, aren't you exhausted of war? Do you not want peace? And he said, look, of course we're exhausted of war. We've been fighting one way or another for 40 years. But if it takes another 40 years, so be it. We're fighting for an Islamic emirate. Yes. Huh, interesting. Okay. In this room, we have these one, two, three, four, five, six gentlemen here. How many of them lost family relatives in the time of the Americans? I made sure I met some of the more traditional yeah, Taliban right. grandees. Only from our village, 7 0. 70 people. And that was the same narrative. I remember one elder I met, he was in his 80s. He'd actually been imprisoned by the Americans in, in the infamous Bagram detention center after the overthrow of the Taliban in 2001. The wounds which I have on my bodies are from the time of Americans. Uh, he, he, was, uh, he was rather fabulous. He had a resplendent beard and, of course, uh, his turban, he was Pashtun, and he had a walking stick and he had all these scars and all the rest of it. Bullets hit here and... Blood. Lucky, huh? That's what gives it more One bullet across. At the time, he was a senior Taliban commander, right? He sat down to talk and, uh, with all his, uh, his family around him and his elders in his village and he said it is as well for the Americans that there is a sea between us and them or the Taliban would pursue them all the way back to America.
Coming up. Does it make any difference to the people in this village whether the emirate comes back or whether there is a democracy in Kabul? But first. Hello, I'm Jane Mulkerens, Associate Editor of The Times magazine. By listening in, you make it possible for me to bring you exclusive stories that you won't get anywhere else. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. How do ordinary Afghans view this deal? Afghans like the thought of freedom. They have a lot of freedom, a desire for freedom within their own hearts. But after so long with war, many have the definition of freedom as being just the cessation of violence in their lives, stability and security, rather than the more abstract notions of freedom that we might have in, in a democratic society. Do they remember, the older men, that the, the chaos stopped when the Taliban arrived? Do they think that the, the Taliban solved that chaos problem? Yeah, exactly. I'm agree that the Taliban was medicine for all the bad activities and the criminals and so on. And that's why many people welcomed him. Okay. So many Afghans do not like the Taliban. However, the Taliban have an appeal of security and stability that is not offered to them by the Afghan government, in whose areas, you know, there is often, not always, but often widespread crime and, and, and disruption, chaos and, and, and violence. There's no overall picture, but never in the last 40 years has Afghanistan been so divided, so atomized by conflicts, within communities, within villages, uh, towns, governments, cities, as it has been now. At this stage we're at now, 
does it make any difference to the people in this village whether the emirate comes back or whether there is a democracy in Kabul? What's important between Republic and Emirate? We have seen both within the Republic, properties, family members are not safe. So through our experience, we prefer Emirate rather than Republic. With the Taliban back in power, the question now is what the future holds. Antony was in Afghanistan before 9-11, the last time the country was under Taliban rule. I think that a lot of people now remember the Taliban, perhaps with rose-tinted spectacles in a way, but the Taliban's rule also has its own peculiar brand of misery. So, for example, when I was in Kabul during the Taliban time in 1996, the city was in a state of abject misery. I think it was something like 25% unemployment. People were in the bazaars. They were selling the most abject, pathetic items in order for money, like empty biros and shoes with holes in the soles of their, their feet. Most emblematic of, of, of this wretchedness, I found, was these rumours that that human bones were being sold from the graveyards. And I didn't believe it at first until I went to check it out with some of the cemeteries and found, indeed, there were gangs of children who were being employed to dig up graves, gather bones, smash them up so they weren't so easily discernible as being human, and then sell them to bone traders who'd mix them up with animal bones and truck them off en masse to Pakistan where they were being boiled down to make glue and cooking oil. And I just, I remember that as really the low point for Afghanistan. Now, that happened during the Taliban rule. Yes, of course, there was some more degree of, of stability and of law and order in the Taliban's zones, but, but the economic hardships, the deprivations were, were extreme. It was another brand of misery. You would see the vice and virtue patrols beating men with whips in order to get them into a mosque at prayer times. I came across a thief once who'd been tied to a lamppost and had the things he'd been caught with, buckets and some vases, I think, been tied around his neck and he'd been covered in oil. It was fearful and it was bleak. But may I say that for many Kabulis, the Taliban's austerity was, I can't say preferable, but less undesirable than the Mujahideen's era of civil war that had preceded it. And then 9-11 happened. On September the 11th, enemies of freedom committed an act of war against our country. By aiding and abetting murder, the Taliban regime is committing murder. Two or three years later, by the next presidential elections, I think were 2004 Afghan presidential elections, the Taliban were a totally marginalised force. Most of them had fled sanctuary in, in Pakistan. But around that time, they started coming back. And there are a number of key moves which were either missed or mishandled by the coalition and the Afghan government. For a start, the Taliban had not been included in a subsequent deal peace deal. So you had a force which had not been totally defeated, it had been driven out, but it had been excluded from a peace settlement. 
Then you had many of the Taliban commanders who had wanted to lay down their weapons and stayed in Afghanistan, who were not allowed to be part of the government. They were instead arrested and put in prison, which antagonised a lot of the population. Then you had rampant, widespread corruption within the Afghan government and many abuses conducted by militias who were nominally serving the Afghan government. Then you get the Taliban beginning to creep back. You get Afghan people, particularly in, in Pashtun areas, more and more angry with the coalition, more and more angry with the Afghan government. But then you get the coalition acting violently in order to suppress those re-emergent Taliban fighters in communities. And that, in turn, rather than squash the insurgency, actually inflames it more and more. And by the time you get to 2009, it's in full, full flow. Afghan forces are losing their long war against a revitalized insurgency. We must deny al-Qaeda a safe haven. We must reverse the Taliban's momentum and deny it the ability to overthrow the government. The coalition launched a surge on the Taliban, but far from making things better, resentment grew. If you imagine... Try and imagine American and British soldiers in Afghanistan is the same way you would imagine being in Britain and having Afghan soldiers based here. Locals will get quite and very easily antagonised by foreign forces patrolling their streets. It doesn't matter if those foreign forces are supposed to be the harbingers of peace and stability or not. You're going to be naturally resistant to the idea of it and you're going to get naturally very angry if those foreign forces start shooting at locals. And so by the time you get to like 2009, 2010, the years of surge, where you really got a full-on war going on down in the south and much of the east, they're less focused on, well, what are the ultimate benefits of democracy versus the Taliban or anything like that? They're not thinking like that. They're just thinking this is war. This is war with a foreign invader killing our people. America's combat mission will be over by the end of this year. Starting next year, Afghans will be fully responsible for securing their country. So the drawdown was an interesting moment because that was the moment at which we were going to see, actually, once a large number of foreign troops leave Afghanistan, will the fighting naturally die down? Will the Taliban say, oh, look, the foreigners have gone. We're going to put down our weapons and start talking with the government to make a peace deal. That was the hope. But in fact, that hope didn't happen at all. What happened when the foreign troops went was the Taliban continued fighting against the Afghan government. And in fact, Afghan government's casualties have been so severe over the last three years that they've stopped publishing what they are every month. Anthony had met a lot of Taliban fighters over the years, and even a would-be suicide bomber. His story told you much of what you needed to know about the state of Afghanistan. This guy was called Fawad, this particular suicide bomber I met. He had a younger brother called Sharib. Fawad was in his early 20s, Sharib was, I think, 19. So their appetite to die began in 2018 when there was a, a night raid by Afghan special forces on their village. I'm not sure exactly when on what went on in the during the night raid, and neither are they, but they do know that when they got home the next morning, they found their father and their two sisters, aged 16 and 6, shot dead in the house multiple times. They'd been shot. The father's hands were tied behind his back. 
And looking at the bullet-riddled bodies, they vowed vengeance and they went off to join a suicide training camp just over the border in Pakistan run by the Haqqani Network, which are a Taliban affiliate. Their widowed mother, who had nothing left of her family, bar her two sons, went off on a hunt for them. Finally, eight months later, she tracked them down to the training camp in Pakistan. She begged the Taliban there, please release my sons. My husband's been killed. My daughters have been killed. I have nothing left by these two boys. Please stand them down. And there was a series of meetings. Eventually, the Taliban leadership agreed to let the boys go. So she returned to Afghanistan with her two sons. And yet, Fawad told me that they were both so desperate to die that Sharib, the younger of the two brothers, a few days later, ran away and joined Islamic State as a suicide bomber. He was like, I want to be a suicide bomber. I want to kill and die and go to paradise. As soon as he had gone off to join Islamic State, then Fawad said to his mother, well, unless you let me go back to join the Taliban as a suicide bomber, I also will run away and join Islamic State. So his distraught mother had no choice but to agree. So by the time I met them, by the time I met Fawad, Fawad was uh, a suicide bomber waiting for a mission with the Taliban, and his younger brother was a suicide bomber with Islamic State waiting for a mission. And the two used to talk by phone. Fawad was trying to persuade his younger suicide bomber brother, to come and join the Taliban to perform a suicide mission. He kept saying, yeah, I keep saying to my brother, I'll get him a really good mission if he just comes back and join us. But he wanted to kill security forces in vengeance for what had been done to his family. And the concepts of vengeance are often completely overlaid with those of war aims in Afghanistan as well. But their story was one, it was an acute story. But actually what it was about, which was a family smashed apart by war, leaving radicalised young men whose only real wish in life was to die, is not a unique story in Afghanistan. It's emblematic of the atomized society brought about by four decades of war. The reason why Afghanistan is in the state it is now is not due to some sort of preordained nature of people to fight. It's due to a series of cataclysmic political and military mistakes which occurred during the coalition's tenure of power, the corruption of the Afghan government, the failure to address Pakistan's support of the Taliban during those years, and the augurs and omens are very, very bad for the country in the wake of Doha. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Times foreign correspondent Anthony Lloyd, and the former president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani, both talking to me last year. You can keep up with all of Anthony's reporting and analysis at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers were Brenna Daldorf, Edward Drummond, Ben Mitchell and James Shield and sound design was by David Crackles. If you'd like to get in touch with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard then please do send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk and if you can, please do leave this episode a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Tomorrow. 